Well, everybody's getting coming in. We'll uh, start with a couple of announcements just to remind everybody that this Saturday is the men's prayer breakfast. And the way you exegete things is if your title is men's prayer breakfast, then when it says everyone can come, it's contextually every man can come. Now, I know there's a lot of ladies that would like to come, but the problem is logistics. We've got an unknown quantity of men coming from two or three other churches, and we're feeding them. And if all of our ladies come, Bryce is going to pull the rest of his hair out. <laughs> and, and I'll be right there with him because he and I are cooking on Saturday morning, and we're, we're already trying to figure out how much to, to cook when we have an unknown number coming. So that would really extrapolate uh, to a problem. So... Uh, it will be up to Dan Crenshaw to determine if we're going to record it. Okay, that's his that's that's his option. So we'll uh, we'll give him that option on Saturday morning. Uh, Dan Crenshaw is a uh, lieutenant commander retired from Navy from the Navy. He was a SEAL. He was wounded and lost an eye in Afghanistan. Actually, he was blinded for a long time in both eyes and regained most of the site back in one eye. He is a, a strong conservative, and he will be speaking to uh, our men's group this coming Saturday morning, and that's open to anyone from any church. We've invited those from uh, uh, Sugarland Bible Church and Grace Bible Church and Pine Valley to uh, join us if they would like, because there are folks in each of those congregations who uh, probably live in Texas District Two, which is currently held by Ted Poe. And as I pointed out in the announcement the other night, uh, <clears throat> Representative Poe has uh, leukemia. He's had leukemia for two or three years, and so he has decided to step down uh, from, his, from his position. So we want to make sure that we have a strong, solid uh, conservative take his, take his place. So that is this coming Saturday. Then a week from Sunday on February the, what is that, 5th? 4th. On February the 4th, we're having our annual congregational meeting. I think that there will be one item on the agenda that we, uh, that we vote on, or is it two? A uh, couple of things, but that's for members only. But anyone can attend the meeting in order to find out what is going on in the business of the, uh, of the church. I don't think there's any other announcements that ought to do it. We have the Chafer Conference coming up, so start thinking about that. That's in about seven weeks, six or seven weeks. And our keynote speaker is going to be uh, Sharam Hadian, who is uh, Iranian by birth. His parents came here just before the Shah fell. He became a believer when he was in college. He is now a pastor. He's been a radio host. He has run for governor of the state of Washington. And he is uh, uh, quite conservative and will not hold back in his uh, explanation of things such as Sharia law and its threat to the Constitution, what Islam really believes, whether Allah is um, the same God as the God of Christians and the God of the Bible and many other uh, controversial things. Somebody sent me a video the other day that was quite interesting. It was a lady who had purchased a Google thing, 
I don't know what they call those things, but you ask it questions, tell it to play music, do all of those kinds of things, and asked it, who is Allah? Who, what is New Age movement? What is Mormonism? All of these things. And the Google entity uh, responded with the appropriate uh, Wikipedia page. But when asked uh, who Jesus Christ is, it was, I have no information. Who is Jesus? I had no information. I tried it on my iPhone and asked Siri who Jesus Christ was, and I got one uh, strange link that was to some Christian site, but it wasn't to like a Wikipedia page on Jesus Christ. Then I asked the, I have one of those Amazon, uh, whatever they're called, Alexa, asked her, and she said, you can find out about Jesus Christ on Wikipedia page for uh, Jesus or Jesus Christ or Jesus of Nazareth. And so that was that was interesting how some of these have been, uh, <clears throat> these things have been programmed. So we uh, are living in an era when there's a lot of downright deceptive information about Islam. There are a lot of people who refuse to accept anything uh, that is, uh, that denigrates Islam but we just have to believe that people believe what they say they believe and what their uh, writings say. So he's going to be speaking in eight sessions, and then we have five other sessions that will be focused mostly on biblical text and issues to be somewhat refreshing after uh, learning about the dark side in Islam. So that will be the Chafer Conference, March 12th through 14th, and the page is up so that you can register. And those who are coming, we just like to have everybody register so we can plan for the logistics and meals and food and all of those uh, type of things. And we're also going to be asking for volunteers to help out during the day, and so be thinking about that. How shall uh, Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him, and he will direct your paths. They that wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings as eagles. They shall run and not grow weary. They shall walk and not faint. Fear thou not, for I am with thee. Be not dismayed, for I am thy God. I will strengthen thee, yea, I will help thee. Yea, I will uphold thee with the right hand of my righteousness. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known unto God, and the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, shall defend your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Thou wilt keep him in perfect peace, whose mind is stayed on thee, because he trusteth in thee. For the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God shall stand forever. Before we begin, we'll have a few moments of silent prayer to give you the opportunity to make sure you are walking by the Spirit, enjoying your relationship with God, benefiting from it as you learn His Word, and then I will open in prayer. Let's pray. Father, we thank you again for a beautiful day that we've had today, an opportunity to serve you, an opportunity to enjoy our relationship with you, opportunities to read your word, to study your word, and to learn to think as you would have us to think. 
Father, above all, we're thankful for your grace that has given us a salvation that is free, that is at no cost to us, though it cost you your son. And Father, we thank you for the rich, incredible spiritual life that you have given us, an opportunity to walk with you by means of God the Holy Spirit and to learn your word and learn to think biblically, learn to think your thoughts after you. Now, Father, we pray that as we study tonight that you will be strengthened, encouraged, and by the Word and by God the Holy Spirit as we focus on what you've uh, challenged us to do. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. <clears throat> Open your Bibles to 1 Peter chapter 4, starting in verse 1. We're continuing to look at the emphasis here, which is on the mindset of the believer, the mental attitude or the mental focus of the believer, which is a vital part of our spiritual life. One of the things that has become, I think, aware to a lot of people in our country is that there is a real weakness in the thinking of a tremendous number of people, and it seems to characterize the millennial generation that is that is coming up. We hear these terms such as snowflakes from those who can't stand to or abide to hear an opposing viewpoint or be challenged in terms of the veracity of their own uh, opinions or ideas, and they can't uh, handle being in, uh, around somebody who thinks differently from them. But we also see a lot of Christians who just fold under pressure who fold in difficult circumstances and whether that those difficult circumstances arise from the temptation to sin that comes from our own sin nature or whether it comes from external circumstances it doesn't matter the solution is always the same scripture uses a term again and again called stand firm me in the Greek, stand firm, stand in the word, stand uh, with the full armor of God on and stand. And that is an emphasis. But one of the aspects of our standing is our mental discipline by means of the Holy Spirit, our mental focus. And there's an emphasis over and again in Scripture on the mindset of the believer in Jesus Christ, of the way in which we think and the importance of thinking over against emoting. Now, there's nothing wrong inherently with sentimentality and emotion in its proper place. But when we are working through life and life's uh, significant issues and challenges, <clears throat> it's not about how we feel. It is about what God says to do and how we are to respond to those circumstances and those situations. In fact, you've probably discovered this, as I have. A lot of times in life, that which is going to feel good is not the correct solution. That which feels worse and is the most difficult to do, <clears throat> that may not be the criteria, but that is often the correct thing to do. So we're looking at the mental focus for spirituality in 1 Peter 4, 1 through 4. Now I'm going to review <clears throat> a lot quickly what we covered in the last lesson because that was three weeks ago. 
And I had to go back and listen to what I taught three weeks ago to put my head back into the passage, and I'm sure that's even more true for most of y'all. Peter reaches a conclusion here in verse 1 and says, Therefore, since Christ suffered for us in the flesh, arm yourselves. That's the key command here. Arm yourselves also with the same mind. For he who has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. So as we look at that, there are several questions. What does it mean to arm ourselves? How do we do that? How do we arm ourselves with the same mind? That is something because it's an imperative. It appeals to the volition that we are to choose to do something. We either arm ourselves with the correct thinking or we arm ourselves with incorrect thinking. But you're going to arm yourself with some one of those two options, whether you like it or not. What often is true in the scripture when we have a command is it's basically a binary solution. You're either obedient or you're disobedient, one or the other. And so we are to arm ourselves with this same mind. What is that? And then there's this statement that is somewhat enigmatic, the way it is translated in the English, for he who has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. From who is it that is suffering in the flesh, and who is it that ceases from sin, and what exactly does that mean? Uh, That is the challenge. So what we see, and I pointed out last time, is that this is structurally related to the thought of 1 Peter 3.18, which states, For Christ also suffered once for sin. As we look through this section, suffering for doing right is the focal point, that that honors and that glorifies God. Uh, 1 Peter 3.17 states the principle, For it is better, if it is the will of God, to suffer for doing good, than for doing evil. And then the illustration comes from Christ and his suffering on the cross uh, when he was put to death on our behalf. So this is the standard, is Christ's focus on the cross. And we've been studying this on uh, Sunday morning in Matthew. And as you think through what happens to the Lord from the time he is Uh, arrested at the Garden of Gethsemane, the times that he is mocked, eight different times, we're going to see that this Sunday, eight different times, he is mocked, ridiculed, spat upon, he is beaten, he is flogged. Uh, All of these things take place worse than anything that any of us can possibly imagine. All take place during the next... um, four to five hours, maybe six hours before he is then taken to the cross and he is crucified on on the cross. And he is innocent of all charges. He has never done anything, never did anything in his life, never committed a sin, never did anything. So he is suffering for doing what is right. And that is the standard for the believer. And as I pointed out last time, one thing that fortifies our thinking is to understand that God is in control. God has a plan and God has a purpose, as we've seen in Romans eight twenty-eight to 30, that we know that all things work together for good to those who love God. That refers to every believer because every believer loves God at the level of their maturity, just as even an infant loves God as a baby. I mean, loves their parents as a baby. 
uh, they love like a baby loves. A two-year-old loves like a two-year-old loves. A 10-year-old like a 10-year-old. But as you mature, you develop a greater and greater capacity. But it's clear that those who love God are those who are foreknown, uh, predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, uh, whom he predestined, those he called, those he called, he justified, who be justified, these he glorified. That involves every believer. There's nobody that's left out. Now, the key thing that I've underlined there in Romans 8.29 is that whom he foreknew, that is a function of his omniscience, knowing all things simultaneously, knowing all things comprehensively, knowing all things, including all options from all eternity, for whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. Now, people often get the wrong idea about predestination. They think that it is fatalism. Predestination is God having a plan and saying, here's my goal. Here's the destiny. Here's the plan I have for every believer. And the destiny is to be conformed to the image of his son. That is another way of talking about maturity. God's plan for every believer is to go through the same processes to grow from spiritual infancy to spiritual maturity so they can glorify God in whatever area of life God has gifted them and provided for them. So the destiny that God has set for every one of us and that God the Holy Spirit is working toward whether you're Uh, going along with his plan or not. There are rebellious believers who are dragged kicking and screaming along the way, and sometimes they're only dragged about that far because they don't care. They've rejected the Lord, and there are others who are uh, focused on their spiritual growth. But the focal point is that we are conformed to be like Jesus, that when people look at us, they're going to get a glimpse more and more as we grow of who Jesus is, of Jesus' character. That's defined as the fruit of the Spirit, those character qualities. And as we mature, we are to reflect the character of Jesus Christ in our lives. That's God's destiny for you to conform you to the image of Jesus Christ. Now, I've pointed this out now because we're going to circle around by the, hopefully, by the end of the session tonight, and we're going to come back to see how this verse connects in several ways to our passage in First Peter. First Peter says that we are to be armed with the same mind. This is a mentality, and so here on this slide, I've left out some of the intervening slides from last time. The main command here is haplizo, a verb that is related to the noun that described the foot soldier, the basic individual uh, soldier in the Greek army was called a hoplite. And this is the verb hoplizo, which describes becoming a soldier to be armed and to be trained. So we are to arm ourselves and to be trained. It's not just enough if you live in Texas, as most of us do, to own a firearm, to have a concealed Uh, or just to have a carry license and to have that sitting on your nightstand or in in a safe under the bed or something like that, we need to learn how to use it, how to be trained to use it so that in a a situation 
we know exactly where it is, how to how to draw the weapon, how to get it out of the safe, how to use it in an instant under pressure. And that's the same kind of thing that we are talking about here in the spiritual life. We are to be armed with the spiritual skills, and we're to constantly train and practice and be prepared to use them because when we get in a battle situation, it's too late to learn what we were supposed to have done and to acquire the skills to use those spiritual techniques at the right time. So that's the idea, arming ourselves. But here, what we're arming ourselves with is the uh, same uh, mind. That is a way of thinking. But this whole concept of arming, all as I pointed out last time, relates to uh, warfare. And all through the scripture, you have these various terms. I put this slide up last time. You have this word group based on the noun uh, polemos, where we get our word polemic, argument, debate, and has to do with war, battle, strife, conflict. Uh, the verb polemeo, to make war, to fight. Then you have the whole word group based on uh, the word strategia, which is the basis for the English word strategy, and this develops into various military campaigns, soldiers uh, serving in the army, serving in a certain positions in the army. All of these different uh, words are used that the, spirit, the scriptures use the military and the warfare metaphor to describe the spiritual life over and over again. And if you are a good soldier, those of you who are here Saturday when uh, Dan Crenshaw is here, just ask him what is the significance of mental attitude in your training as a SEAL? It's you don't give up. You're not willing to give up. You are going to push through anything. It is a, you, you set your mind ahead of time that this is what you're going to do. And you, you make certain decisions ahead of time that you carry through with no matter how, how difficult it becomes. It is a mindset. So we have different scriptures that emphasize these, this concept of the mind and the thinking. For example, Romans 12.2 says that we are to not be conformed to the world, and that is not the word cosmos, which you normally run into as being translated world. It's the world ionos, which refers to the, it's a time word. It's referring to th that which dominates the thinking in the era in which you live. There is a zeitgeist, is the German word, a spirit of the age. So if you are a millennial, you are influenced by a certain spirit of the age that is much different from your grandparents. And your grandparents were co coming up probably in the 40s or 50s, and they were influenced by a worldview that was more influenced by uh, theism and or uh, modernism, whereas now it's more influenced by the relativism of postmodernism. So all of us, every human being grows up within a certain age, a certain time period, and is being molded into the norms and standards, into the thought forms of that era. And this is so much a part of each one of us that we don't really think about it. 
It's like a fish swimming in the water. The fish just doesn't think about the water as the environment in which all of his actions take. It's, it's just second nature to him. And that's the way this uh, worldly thinking is for us growing up as unbelievers under the control of the sin nature, which just has a, it, it's got a Velcro strip on it that is uh, attached to the zeitgeist. So that whenever you hear the, the ideas and opinions and the values of the spirit of your age, your sin nature, sin nature just Velcros itself right to those ideas, and then you suck them into your soul. And the only thing that can change that is not politics. It's not education. That can help in some ways. It's spiritual because ultimately it's a spiritual battle. And so we have to be transformed by the renewing of our mind. There's a metamorphosis. That's the Greek word there for transformation. And we renew our mind. And the word there, which is important in our context, is this word nous. It's the root for many different words in, in the Greek that are compounds that are made with different prepositions. And it has to do with that part of the soul that is the seat of thinking, the seat of reason, the seat of uh, understanding, the seat of knowledge, where we work our way through various things in terms of knowledge and understanding and application. And so this is where uh, the values, this is where the uh, ideals of the spirit of the age reside and the role in the spiritual life is that we have to uh, excise these views that we have absorbed from the world around us through peers, through professors, through teachers, through parents, and we have to uh, exchange that for biblical truth. That's what I often refer to as human viewpoint being replaced by divine viewpoint. But the problem with the believer is you can almost feel like you've got this you know, dual nature because part of you is a sin nature with all of your wonderful comfort zones in terms of your ideas, your values, your attitudes, your emotional responses, those things that make you feel warm and fuzzy because that's what you how you learn to respond to life's problems and then if you're walking by the spirit you have a totally different often just the opposite of what you should have when you're walking by the spirit so we have to re renew that mind for a purpose to demonstrate something we are a we are exhibit a as church age believers in the angelic conflict and our job is to grow to spiritual maturity to demonstrate that the will of god is good and acceptable and perfect now i want you to notice that as paul's developing his thought there in romans 12:2 he talks about renewing your mind and then he talks about those thought processes down in uh, verse 3, just the very next verse. He talks about that we're not to think more highly of ourselves than we ought to think. And the word, therefore, to think is the infinitive of phreneo. Now, that's an important word. We have several words that are related to thinking. 
Nous is the mind. That's the seat of the thinking. Then we have this word, uh, phroneo, which has to do with having a certain mindset or thinking a certain way, and that's used that way. And then we'll run into another word a little later on that's logizomai. And logizomai is a word where it's based on logos for words, and it has to do with logic or uh, reason, the process of using a big word, ratiocination, the process of thinking. It comes from the same root as rational. So it, that's, that's the idea of the thought processes of the mind. And that, <clears throat> excuse me, that word logizomai has a broad meaning. As we'll see, it not only refers to counting, it's an economics term, it's a <clears throat> accounting term, but it also has to do with imputation. Some places it's translated impute something or reckon something or counting something is true. It's thinking through logically and coming to conclusions. But then there's another word, hegeomai, that is also used, and that's one you're, uh, you've seen translated as count also in uh, James 1, 2, count it all joy. These are all thought words. These are all words that relate to analyzing something and working it through step by step on the basis of logic and reason and coming to a conclusion. So this is another one of those words, phreneo here, and we see it in places like just further down in the chapter, Romans twelve sixteen. Paul says, be of the same mind toward one another. That is a command. We are to think the same. We are to, when we're walking by the Spirit and our desire is to grow spiritual and glorify God, then we could work through any kind of problem or conflict together. What causes conflict is a sin nature. What solves conflict is submission to God and walking in humility. And so that's what Paul is telling them here. The opposite of being of the same mind is being divided. Be of the same mind toward one another. Don't set your minds on high things. He's going back around to pick up that principle of thinking more highly of yourself than you ought to think, but associate with the humble. You humble yourself by submitting to the authority of God. This is picked up in Philippians chapter 2. Twice we have this in uh, the, the beginning of that chapter where Paul says, Fulfill my joy by being like-minded. It's a different word there. Having the same love, being of one accord, of one mind. Phreneo is used there. And then let this mind, phreneo again, be uh, in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. We are to think like Jesus Christ thinks, then we will have the character that Jesus Christ has, and we will be conformed to the image of Christ. That's how this works. God has a plan, and that is to mold us into a reflection of the character of Jesus Christ. And so that is the mentality that is being thought through here. It's not about you anymore. See, that's the sin nature. Sin nature says it's all about me. But when you become a believer and you understand who you are in Christ, it's all about Christ. It's all about letting uh, the Holy Spirit work in us to create the character of Christ in us to get rid of those sin nature uh, hard edges that are part of our old man 
and to walk by the Spirit so that we can learn to reflect the character of Christ. It involves volition. It's not something passive. You don't just say, well, I'm going to confess my sins, and now I'm in fellowship. It's going to happen. No. All you do, it's, like, it's like going to the gym. When you're out of fellowship, when you sin, you're not at the gym, and you're home, and you're eating junk food, and you're sleeping late, and you're doing all the things that are unhealthy. Then when you confess sin, that is going back to the gym, and it puts you inside the gym. But once you're inside the gym, you're just at a place where you can work out. You can exercise. You can do the right things to uh, develop a healthy body and to build your muscles and all of the things that go along as a result of a good hard workout. All confession does is put you inside the gym. It doesn't exercise you. You don't grow by being in the gym. You know, I don't know where you go to the gym, but most gyms, they have a place where you can sit down, where maybe uh, you can sit and wait for somebody or something like that. But sitting, if you go into the gym and you just sit there and drink coffee, you may be in right relationship with the gym in the right place, but you're not growing. Okay, so we have to exercise. That's obeying Scripture. It's all of those things, but it's done. You could do it at home, but that's in the flesh by the terms of the analogy. You have to be in the right location, which is uh, walking by the Spirit. So only when we have that mentality developed by the Holy Spirit are we going to grow uh, together. Uh, in 1 Corinthians 1.10, Paul talks about uh, the Corinthians were very divided, very arrogant, all kinds of divisions, and he is praying that they would be perfectly joined together in the same mind. Okay, there he uses the word noose, the same uh, thought forms. Okay, and you only get that if you are studying the word and letting the word of God wash through your soul and inhabit your soul. Philippians 3.16 Again, he uses this this same imagery, let us walk by the same rule, that is the word of God, the standard of divine viewpoint. Let us be of the same mind. Now, this phrase, let us be of the same mind, isn't in the, <clears throat> the Nestle Alon text. So if you have New American Standard or NIV or ESV or one of those, uh, you're not going to have this phrase in your Bible. But it's in the majority text, which is a critical Greek text, and it's so it will, which is similar to, but very different from the King James or New King James, but those, are, there's a lot of similarities because the text is receptus that um, those two translations are based on is a subset of the majority text, which is why I tend to go with the New King James because it picks up these these differences. So it's the same word. It's being of the same mind for neo. So <clears throat> we're to arm ourselves by being of the same mind. And here it uses a different word. It uses the word enoia. Enoia. Now the en is a prefix. It's a preposition. And then you see the letters n-o-i. That comes from the noun noose. Okay. So it's with thought, as it were. 
and it is the idea by adding that preposition it changes the the nuance there <clears throat> i've put up some dictionary definitions there that are rather rudimentary that this talks about thought or knowledge or insight or the content of mental processing but it's more than that this is why uh, looking at other places where a word is used is insightful now <clears throat> the greek of the new testament isn't a whole lot different from the Greek that was uh, that the Septuagint, the Old Testament was translated into, and in somewhere around the mid second to early third century B.C. And so, if you go back and see how Greek, what Greek words were used in the Septuagint, translating what Hebrew words and how the rabbis thought in terms of the understanding, that really helps open up some of these things. <clears throat> and in uh, one of the commentaries that is put out, Baker Exegetical New Testament Commentary. Sometimes it's excellent, sometimes it's not so excellent, but uh, the theology at times in some of these con commentaries is weak, but sometimes they have brilliant insights on grammar and words. And uh, Karen Jobes, who wrote this commentary, states that in the Septuagint, uh, in the Septuagint of Proverbs, the noun ennoia often refers to that mindset or disposition that issues in right moral action. Then she lists some verses from Proverbs. She says, Therefore, Peter exhorts his readers to have the same resolve that characterized Christ. What she is saying by having the right mindset that issues in right moral action is what she later makes clear when she says it's resolve. It is a determination toward a right course of action. It is making a determination ahead of time that under such and such circumstances, this is how I'm going to think, this is how I'm going to react, this is how I'm going to respond. So Proverbs 2.11 is one of those examples which reads, discretion will preserve you and understanding will keep you. Now, the word understanding in the Proverbs is a, is a translation of the Hebrew word bean, which means to make a choice between two options. Now, we have two different scenarios when we make choices. We make a choice between that which is good and that which is wrong that which is right and that which is wrong. But a lot of times the choices we have in life are that which is good and that which is better, that which is part of walking by the Spirit and that which may be moral or right, but it is not part of walking by the Spirit. So the idea is that anoya was used to translate this because the rabbis understood that this understanding has to do with a predetermined resolve to apply knowledge and truth. So that is these terms, knowledge, truth, understanding, are, and wisdom are all used in Proverbs. Understanding and wisdom are the application end. When, wisdom is how to apply the truth, how to apply the knowledge that you learned in a way that is skillful. And the only way you learn to be skillful in anything is to practice. So Proverbs 2.11 uses it that way. Proverbs 3.21, uh, My son, let them not depart from your eyes. That is the words of wisdom that he's taught. Keep sound wisdom and discretion. Wisdom is application, so is discretion. 
It's related to continuing to apply what you have resolved to do. Proverbs 16.22, understanding is a wellspring of life to him who has it. So this is talking about the application of your resolve, that you're going to apply the word no matter what. And the result is it's going to give you life. It's going to give you a full life, a capacity for life. It's going to give you life as Jesus promised it when he said, I came not like a thief to destroy, but to give you life and to give you life abundantly. That's this wellspring of life. It comes from knowledge of the word and the resolve to apply it. Growth only occurs through application. Then in Proverbs 23:19, we read, Hear, my son, and be wise, and guide your heart in the way. Now, the heart here, most of the time in the Old Testament in Hebrew, heart is a term for the core of your soul, the thinking at the core of your soul. It's not a synonym for emotion. In a few instances, it is couple of instances it relates to uh, decision making or volition but about 98 percent of the time it relates to a resolve a i mean it relates to thinking it relates to what controls the mind and so uh, <clears throat> the way is that path that the wise person has chosen to go down you often see the way is used different uh, translates different terms in the Hebrew, but here it's translated this way because it's in, the, the rabbis understood this as uh, focusing on the resolve to go down the path no matter how difficult it may be. So that's the idea that we have in 1 Peter 4.1, that we're to arm ourselves, the discipline, the training, learning the skills related to each of the different weapons that we are given as part of the spiritual life, learning about the armor of God and putting on the full armor of God. And we are to be armed with the same thinking that is that resolve that we see in the Lord Jesus Christ as he set his face toward Jerusalem across the Kidron Valley. The soldiers are coming to arrest him. He has just finished the struggle of prayer in the Garden of Gethsemane, and now he is facing his destiny. He's facing the soldiers, the multitude, the crowd that is coming to arrest him, and he is the one who asserts his authority. Remember when they were coming to him, he spoke. Uh, when they said, we're looking for Jesus, and he said, I am here, and they all fell down. He is asserting his, who he is. He's not ending the situation or taking control of it, but from that point on, he really is the one who is in control no matter what they're doing. If they're beating him, they're flogging him, all of these different things, Jesus is still the one who's in control and uh, like a lamb before his shears is dumb, he uttered not a word. He didn't cry out. He didn't whine. See, this is the kind of mindset that should characterize a believer. You face difficulties. You're not going to whine. That doesn't mean you don't talk to your friends about it. There's a difference between 
talking through things with people who are fellow believers who are close to you so you can encourage and strengthen one another and whining and complaining about what is going on in your life and how unhappy and how miserable you are and God just doesn't understand you and blah, 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 which is what happens when the sin nature is in control. So we're to arm ourselves with the same resolve that Jesus had. For the joy set before him, he endured the cross, we're told in Hebrews 12.2. So this is the idea that Job's points out, which I thought was an excellent understanding of this word. A lot of times in technical commentaries, you'll find just these little brilliant insights into different words. So we have this, these admonitions in Scripture. Talked about this last time, Philippians 4.8. Finally, brothers, whatever is true... Whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, whatever, if there is any excellence and anything worthy of praise, think about these things. Now, the word for think there isn't for neo. It's not the word anoia, which we just said. It's the word legizomai. Now, that's the same word we saw earlier, and it has to do with working our way through something, taking it apart, putting it back together in our minds, looking at life situations and understanding it from the framework of what you've learned about the Word in Bible class. Taking the Word, taking your understanding of God, taking your understanding of the Holy Spirit, taking your understanding of the spiritual life and relating it to what is happening in these situations and circumstances that you face so that you're thinking about the things that God wants you to think about and not focusing on your self-absorbed arrogance and how you don't get what you want, how bad this is, how difficult the circumstances are, and that kind of a thing. And this comparison here, as I pointed out last time in 1 Peter 4.1, concludes, why do we have this same mind? For this reason, okay? It doesn't come across in the English translation, for he who has suffered. It's developing the idea here. The for there in the, in the Greek represents what's called an exegetical use of the, of, the, of the word, and that means it's telling us in this way or in this manner. And so in this manner, the person who has suffered in the flesh, and the person who's suffering in the flesh is the person who's in his mortal body, and he's suffering because he is suffering for doing right, um, back in verse 17, he's suffering for doing good rather than from doing evil. And so he has suffered in the flesh for doing the right thing the right way and has ceased from sin. That is, he has stopped using sin as his problem-solving device. He has stopped using sin as the way to handle the problems. He's not going to worry about it. He's not going to get angry. He's not going to uh, pout or whine or cry about it and get have a pity party. He's not going to use slander uh, against people who may have gossiped to cause the problem. He's going to put it in the hands of God, which is what Peter says in the next chapter, casting all your care upon him because he cares for you. He's resolved that he's not going to handle the crisis with sin. That's the mindset of Christ. He's not going to 
handle the, all the pressure that came at the cross by being independent of the Father. And so that brings us down <clears throat> to verse 2, that he, should, that he no longer should live the rest of his time in the flesh. That's parallel to what Paul is saying, Galatians 5.16, don't walk according to the flesh. Romans 8 uh, talks about that, not walking according to the sin nature for the lusts of men, but for the will of God. Now, this is a major theme that Peter's been hitting on. First Peter 2.11, he says, Beloved, I beg you as sojourners and pilgrims. Now, that's a term, we'll get to this in the next verse, in verse, uh, or in verse 3, when it talks about Gentiles. Uh, Gentiles are not unbelievers. They are uh, Gentiles. Gentiles means you're not Jewish. It doesn't mean you're an unbeliever. But in that context, the Gentiles were not, because this is the early church, they're not saved. So they're, uh, but that term, we'll see why that means Gentiles and not unbelievers when we get there. So we're to abstain from fleshly lusts which war against the soul. So I think we fix the sin nature diagram trying to get it to where all everything's visible and legible. Um, and I think that's a lot better than it was. We're driven by these lust patterns. I talked about this on um, on Tuesday night. The power lust, the approbation lust that dominated uh, Joab as well as Abner and these men around David, you often find this in politics. This is a great threat to any politician. It's a great threat to many different leaders. It's a threat to many church leaders. And uh, you get find this with pastors, you find this with deacons and elders and Sunday school teachers and all kinds of people who get involved in leadership just to uh, fulfill their own power lust or their approbation lust. But there's many other different kinds of lust. You have sex lust, you have materialism lust, you have money lust, you have all kinds of pleasure lust, you have uh, various lusts that relate to uh, whatever area of life that you're involved in and you want uh, that power, that recognition or whatever it may be. And you also can get involved in a lust for revenge, a lust to get back at people, a lust to hurt people who you think have hurt you. And so the lust patterns and the sin nature are what drive you, what motivate you. If you work with people, think about these people in your life and what lust patterns are motivating them. That's a great way to understand the dynamics in any organization is who's being driven by what lust patterns. And you have <clears throat> these trends, trends towards asceticism or legalism or morality without spirituality, and that just leads, like it did with the Pharisees, to moral degeneracy. Or you have trends towards licentiousness and antinomianism, which just means moral lawlessness and uh, lasciviousness, and that leads to immoral degeneracy. A lot of what we've seen coming out in the news about different people in Hollywood. You have many people there who are moral. You have some who are believers, some who are uh, conservative, but they uh, have to keep a low profile because it's in many areas there's just a lot of... Uh, uh, licentious and immoral degeneracy. But this is the sin nature. And these lusts 
that we all have. They're all part of every sin nature. They don't go away when you become a Christian. They're still there. In fact, if you become a Christian when you're little, uh, sometimes they, later on you have real problems because you didn't realize this was going to come around the corner and hit you. Uh, you have these lust patterns. And so Peter warned back in verse uh, chapter 2, verse 11, that these fleshly lusts, war against the soul they are destructive they eat away at your character at your mentality at your emotions and over a period of 50 or 60 years they uh, they are quite corrosive and corrupting now when we look at the soul the bible talks about us as having uh, made of three components the physical human body And then there's an immaterial soul made up of a self-consciousness that says, I know who I am. I recognize who I am. You look in the mirror and you look look there and you know, well, that's, that's me. You can distinguish yourself from somebody else. You get a little older, you may look in the mirror and say, I'm looking at my dad. That's what I do. Looks like my dad, my mother, uh, you know, but you know, it's you. Till you get Alzheimer's and you think it's your dad. Uh, my dad used to look at a picture of me and go, that's me. That's, no, that's me. That's not you. But that's what happens when you get into dementia. But most of you aren't there yet. I don't know about some of you there. Anyway, so that's self-consciousness. Animals don't have that. You'll see birds outside of a, of a window or a glass door fighting at its reflection, thinking it's another bird. Or you'll see dogs see a reflection of themselves, and they'll bark at it thinking it's another dog. They don't have that self-consciousness. Then you have a mentality. This is the thinking part of the soul where you reason, you have logic, you have knowledge, you have understanding. Then you have the conscience, which stores your norms and standards, the things that you ought to do. And then there's the volition where you make decisions. This is the decider of the soul. And in this diagram, I've overlapped these because they intersect in the soul. We can take them apart for analysis and and to think about them, but in the reality, that combination of those four things makes up your person, your soul, who you are, your identity. Now, when you trust in Christ... You're regenerate, and you receive a human spirit. Adam was created body, soul, and spirit. But when he sinned, that human spirit that gave his self-consciousness, the ability to relate to God as God-consciousness, his mentality to think God's thoughts after him, his conscience to have God's norms and standards as part of the determiner in his soul and his volition— that all of that was directed toward God. But when he died spiritually, all he had was a body and a soul. He was still physically alive, but that which gave him life, real life, was gone. It was like pulling the plug on a fan. It still looks like it's on. How many of you all have gone into a room and you've got a ceiling fan and it's too high and you pull a cord two or three times and is that still on or is it just slow? And you reach up there to kind of get your fingers close to it to see if you can slow it down. And all of a sudden, it hits your hand and realize, oh, it's still on. But this is when you pull the plug, it may keep going and look like there's life there, but it's 
slowly winds down. That's the spiritually dead person. They're physically alive, but they're spiritually dead. But when you trust in Christ, that human spirit orients, comes in, and you can orient the elements of your soul toward toward God. So these are the elements, and we're talking about that that mentality portion of the soul. So we are to set this resolve so that we no longer live the rest of our time in the flesh. That's according to the sin nature, letting these lusts war against the soul. But we live for the will of God. That tells us that everything is a binary option. We're either choosing the will of God or our own will. We're either walking by the Spirit or we're walking by the sin nature. We're either walking in the foolishness of human viewpoint or the wisdom of the Word of God. And so uh, we're reminded of 1 Peter 2.15, For this is the will of God, that by doing good you may put to silence the ignorance of foolish men. And then... In 1 Peter 3.17, it says it's the will of God to suffer for doing good. So the good may silence the ignorance of foolish men, but you may also suffer some negative consequences for uh, doing good rather than for doing evil. But this is our job. Remember, we looked at this in Romans 12.2. I told you we'd circle back around that we are to demonstrate in our lives that the will of God is good and perfect and acceptable. We are exhibit A in the angelic conflict, and we're to demonstrate that God's will is right. Even if it destroys our life, that's what happens with Job. He lost everything, and he said, even though he slay me, yet will I trust him. That's the mentality of the believer who is focused on spiritual truth. The issue, the important issue, is we have to learn to think. We have to strengthen that mental attitude of our spiritual life. A lot in, <clears throat> a lot in life is affected by our thinking. It involves uh, our presuppositions about life, and a lot of it is shaped by who we understand ourselves to be. We have certain basic beliefs about who we are, who we are as individuals, and our identity. Before you're saved, you are just the accidental result of an electrical charge and a mass of protoplasm. But after you're saved, we realize that we're created in the image and likeness of God. And every one of us has value. That's why life is important, because every human being, it doesn't matter if you're born with a birth defect. It doesn't matter what the circumstance is. If you have a human soul, you are in the image and likeness of God, and your life matters. Your life has value. We may not understand some things and why God has allowed some of these things to happen, but it's a test to trust him and that we will come to an understanding at some particular point uh, in the future. So we are transformed by what we learn. In, uh, <clears throat> in our culture, we have a human viewpoint counterfeit to that biblical truth, and this is the whole doctrine of self-image. The whole doctrine of self-image has its roots in pagan psychology, in secular psychology, and there are elements of it that might be true, But why go to secular psychology when most of it is just garbage? 
and it's all uh, surrounding a few things that are true, but you only know if it's true if you have the Word of God in your soul to evaluate it. So just stick with the Scripture. You don't need all these self-help books. So the human viewpoint counterfeit is this concept of self-image, and we've seen where that goes in some of the radical things that came out in education policy uh, in the U.S. in the in the 80s and in the 90s that destroyed uh, a lot of people's understanding of competition and growth and understanding and learning how to properly uh, challenge themselves to overcome obstacles. But the bottom line is that it, no matter who you are, you have certain beliefs about who you are. And that involves your identity as well as your destiny, your purpose in life and where you're going. And the Word of God transforms all of those particular things. And if you have garbage in your soul, if you have false thinking in your soul, if you have wrong beliefs in your soul about who you are and where you came from and what your destiny is, then all of the tools that you use to make life work are going to be wrong. Uh, scripture says in Proverbs 23, 7, as he thinks in his heart, so is he. So at the very core of your thinking, if you're thinking right thoughts, then that's going to change who you are and how you interact with people and the issues of life. But if you are thinking on the basis of of lies on the basis of arrogance on the basis of the sin nature and rebellion and autonomy in rebellion and autonomy or independence from God or idolatry then that is going to shape your life in a different way this word that it's translated thinks is only used twice in the old testament and it means to calculate to reckon it is uh, not to my knowledge, it's not translated by logizomai, but it's that same idea. It is the idea of calculating, reckoning something uh, in your life. And so that it presupposes a certain knowledge about life. We have various passages in Scripture that talk about the importance of mentality. So let me break this down. Well, I will stop here because our time's up. But I'm going to start here next time in terms of understanding what the Bible says, uh, continuing to understand what it says about our thinking and thinking as God thinks. Father, thank you for this opportunity to be challenged by the truth of your scripture, to focus on our thought, the content of our thought, and the methodology of our thinking, how we think. That we're to think your thoughts after you. We're to think with the mind of Christ, which is scripture. We are to think objectively, which can only come from understanding truth, which is located uh, outside of us, a truth that is revealed to us from your word, and that we are to believe it and let it transform us from the inside out, to change our lives so that no matter what we might face in life, we can have stability, we can have hope, we can have joy, we can have happiness in the midst of the greatest trials because we know you have a plan and a purpose for our lives and that all things work together for good. And Father, we pray these, that we will realize these things in our life. In Christ's name, amen.